Anyway, this morning we're going to be beginning our series on Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, famously called by Augustine in the 5th century, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I recommend two books at the beginning of this series, depending on how much you like to read, you can uh, choose which uh, uh, one you want to to read, The Sermon on the Mount by John Stott or The Sermon on on the Mount by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Both of them are, are fantastic books, I'd recommend uh, them to you. It, these are, Matthew's not the only gospel to record the Sermon on the Mount. Luke does as well. Luke has like a condensed version of it in 37 verses. He's sort of an abridged version of what Jesus says, whereas Matthew goes into slightly more detail and records more of what Jesus said during his sermon and covers it in 107 uh, verses. Arguably, in fact, these two chapters are some of Jesus' most famous teachings that people generally think of when they think of the, the teachings of Jesus Christ. Some people have claimed, oh, these are, these are great. This is, this is what we want, practical ways of how to live. None of that theological and religious stuff. We don't want any of, of that that we see in the other books. Just, let's just go with these two chapters. Other people have seen them, most famously Tolstoy, as, a, a, as a, like a blueprint for humanity, that if we follow these, we could create utopia, peace here on earth. However, those two conclusions can only come from a superficial reading of what Jesus says and for not really understanding them. Because if you look into this passage in any detail, you'll realize that it is intensely theological. And it's also completely impossible for us to do it on and in our own strength. In fact, Matthew and Luke make it very clear in these two chapters that Jesus is addressing his newly appointed disciples. They both make it very specific that he's looking at them or he's focusing on them and speaking to his disciples. R.T. France, in um, his commentary on Matthew, he says, actually, rather than call it the Sermon on the Mount, he says uh, it should be referred to as the Discourse on Discipleship because Jesus is focusing on his disciples. And he goes on to say that rather than it being general ethics for all mankind, it is the specific demands of the kingdom upon its subjects. Far from being a standard all can live up to, the standard set is nothing less than perfection or being like God. Jesus takes what the scribes have been teaching from the law of Moses and what they'd twisted from the law of Moses. And rather than lessening the demands, he talks about a righteousness that comes from our very heart, from the very person that we are. It's like the teaching of Moses on steroids or something like that. You know, you have to be a superman to do it. That's why the teaching is not just a general teaching for mankind to live up to. Because, I mean... If they did, yes, there would be uh, perfection. There would be um, utopia here on earth. But it's not possible for us to do it in our own strength. And it would only lead to external displays of righteousness and hypocrisy greater than what Jesus 
was addressing in, his, in the Pharisees. Jesus here is addressing his original 12 disciples and also all subsequent disciples of, of his. And this is only possible for those people who God has already fulfilled the words that he spoke of in Ezekiel when he says this in Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's, it's what Jesus says when he refers to people being born again or born of the spirit of God. This sermon is, is for the one who Christ has already washed clean. One who Christ has already put his Holy Spirit inside of us who then helps us and causes us to want to try and live to please God and to be more like him. Not from some you know, religious perspective, but from the very core of our being. We want to be more like Jesus because that's what his spirit is producing in us. And for those of you here this morning who don't know Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is to highlight to you, as it has for the rest of us, our complete inability to fulfill all that God requires of us so that we look to Jesus as our Lord and Savior and say, we need you, we want you, because we've all fallen short of what God requires of us. And if you read through this sermon, I'd encourage you this week to read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 in one sitting. Read it even out loud. Is, uh, it will be, be good for you to, to, to do that. And you will see, oh, I failed here. Oh, I failed there. So, oh, I failed there uh, as, as well. And therefore, when you read it, it makes you realize, oh, I need Jesus. I need to turn to him because he is the one, the only one, who fully fulfills this. And then he chose to die on the cross so that all who put their faith in him, all who put their trust in him, could be forgiven for the things that they have done wrong, where they have failed God, and they can receive Christ's righteousness. And then he rose again, having defeated death, having defeated sin, so that he can give us the power to beat sin. And ultimately, when we die or he returns, he'll give us the power to defeat death itself and live with him for all eternity. So if that's you this morning, even as I begin this series, as we begin to look at this series, let me start by just giving you an invitation. If you're in that place, you think, yeah, I realize I've been coming here a while. It may even be your first time here this morning. You think, actually, no, I realize I need Jesus. I realize I'm not in the right place with God. Then just pray this prayer in your heart with me. And then as I carry on, what I say will be applicable to you as well. So just pray this before God. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you sent Jesus to live the perfect life that I have failed to live. Thank you that he died on the cross so that I could be forgiven of all that I have done that offends you. Forgive me of the things that I've done wrong.
Please put your spirit in me and help me live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Amen. So now can I encourage us as his disciples, and that applies to you if you have just prayed that prayer as well, to listen to these words that I'm going to read from Matthew. I'm only going to read the first 12 verses, and I'm only actually going to preach on the first six, but they just flow so well. It would be a shame or even wrong of me to just stop halfway through. So it says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I have to stop myself saying blessed because of Matt Redman's song, but anyway, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As I said, I just today, I'm just going to focus on the first four of what's known as the Beatitudes. And then next week, Dunk is going to continue and look at the rest of them. But today, I want to show how these verses teach us that as Christ's disciples, we are to be dependent on God and we are to desire his kingdom here. So, we're called to be dependent on God. Notice that it starts with saying, He sat down, taking the appropriate position of a Jewish rabbi. He opened his mouth. Again, a well-known Jewish idiom to, to, to say that he was teaching people. Only Matthew's gospel refers to, to the kingdom of heaven. The rest refer to the kingdom of God. You see, Matthew's gospel, whilst like all the scripture, is relevant to all of us, for everyone, for all time... Actually, it was written by Matthew with a specific purpose. He was writing in particular to the Jews of his time. And the Jewish people of his time, and it's still true to some extent today, they, 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 they didn't want to take the name of the Lord in vain. And so that instead of referring to God, they would often refer to other things that were associated with God. So that they wouldn't say God's name, they would say something else, like the kingdom of heaven. Whereas the other Gospels, which were written primarily to a non-Jewish audience, they, where the people there were, would believe in many gods, they needed to make it clear. No, no, Jesus was referring to the kingdom of God. It's interesting, isn't it, how Jesus, when he came to earth, he ministered to people 
in a way that they could understand and related to them in a way that they could understand as well. And just as a little aside, my friends, we as Christ's body here and now need to make sure we are relating to the people around us in a way that they understand and realize their need for Christ. We don't change the message. We don't water down the message of the truth. But we do adapt how we present it in a way that can reach more people. Paul says to the Jews, he became like a Jew. To the Gentiles, he became like a Gentile in order to reach them. Jesus very deliberately starts with eight blessed sayings. Or if you've got the Matt Rednam song in your mind, blessed sayings. The eighth one he repeats because he personalizes uh, it to each of the believers. Because 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we can all expect some measure of persecutions. You see, so these sayings, these eight sayings that Jesus says aren't to be taken um, sort of separately. They, they apply to all. All of them apply to all of his disciples. It's not like some people are gifted in, in some areas, like being poor in spirit, and others you know, are gifted in being pure in heart. It's not, it's not like that. It's not like, yes, you know, my gifting is uh, I'm meek. I'm just so meek. I'm, I'm probably the meekest man you know, actually. It's just my gifting. Whereas, you know, you, on the other hand, well, mourning, clearly, mourning is, uh, is, is, is your gifting. You're always uh, sad. It's not, it's not like that. We're called to be growing in all of these characteristics that God, that Jesus highlights here. Because they're all interconnected. R.T. France says on this, they're like a pocket guide to life in the kingdom. And J.C. Ryle says there are eight foundation stones on which the kingdom is, is, is built upon. Another important thing before I get into looking at the four um, blessed sayings to realize is that when Jesus says blessed, or it can be translated happy, happy, are, are, are those. It's not referring to how somebody feels. It's not that you feel happy, but it's about the situation you're in. It's a happy situation. It's a blessed situation. It's like Jesus is saying, it's good for the one who is poor in spirit. Or it's good for the one who is meek or, or whatever he's addressing. And the truth is, my friends, that all that God requires of you and me is for our good. God only requires things that, that benefit your life. Actually, anything that we do that is contrary to God is actually detrimental to our life. And the more you surrender your life to Jesus, and the more you take him at his word, the greater fullness of life you will experience in your life as well. So my friends, we need to be people of this book, dependent on this book. As Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And do you know what? That holds true in real life as well. If you apply scripture to your life, as you live out the Bible, it will benefit your 
life in a number of ways. And we've just got a short video which will, will, will help demonstrate this point as well. So hopefully... There was a recent study by the Center for Bible Engagement where they pulled uh, 40,000 general population in the U.S. from 8 to 80, and they just wanted to see how we are engaging with Scripture. Right. And they discovered something that actually became kind of the profound discovery of the entire study. They weren't even looking for this, and this is kind of became the highlight of the study. Right. when we're in the scripture one time a week, and that could be church on Sunday, that's pastor saying you open your Bible, we hear the message, one time a week had negligible effect on some key areas of your life. So I'm going to spell that out more here in a moment. Two times a week, negligible effect. Now at three times a week, there was a blip on the map, like there was a heartbeat. Something happened, again, a heartbeat. Okay. But here was the profound discovery. When we're in the scripture four times a week, it literally spikes off the chart. You would expect that it'd be one, two, th- I mean, there'd be a gradual incline right. on the effect and impact that would have in your life, but it was literally one, two, three, four, something radically happens. Okay, you got my curiosity. To this what, extent. What kind of behavior is being affected? Feeling lonely drops 30%. Wow. Ang- four times a week in the four Bible. Four times a week in the Bible. Okay. Anger issues drop 32%. Uh, bitterness in relationships, marriage, a relationship with your kids, and so on, drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant. You know, if there was one area when I'm talking with people that, that they'll be honest about is they just feel spiritually stagnant. Ask them the question, how much time are you spending in the Scripture? If they're in the Scripture four times a week or more, it drops 60%. Wow. Viewing pornography drops 61%. That's very important. Now, on a flip positive side, sharing your faith jumps 200%. Wow. Because you have a confidence in God's Word. And then discipling others jumps 230%. That's, That's amazing right there. Powerful statistics, yeah? You're feeling lonely. You're struggling with anger or addiction. The Word of God, it sets... You free. My friends, we need to be dependent on God and God's word. It's for our good, not our harm. And you see, the lie that mankind has believed ever since the beginning when we fell has been that we don't need God. We can be like him. We ourselves can decide what's right and wrong with uh, how we're going to live. But my friends, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And when we come to the end of ourselves and realize that we're just dust, and no matter how much knowledge we have, actually we are only finite and God is infinite. And we surrender and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, looking to Him for help, looking to Him for guidance, looking to Him for direction in our lives. That is being poor in spirit. That's what it refers to. Calvin wrote this. He said, He only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. And listen to what God says about this. He says in Isaiah 57, he says, Thus says the one who is high 
and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in high and holy places. You think, yeah, that that makes sense. But then he goes on to say, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the contrite in heart. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains, poor in spirit means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. The way to become poor in spirit is to look to God. To be poor in spirit is the fundamental characteristic of a Christian. All other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this one. That's why Jesus starts with it in this list. To become a disciple of Christ, you become poor in spirit. You recognize that you can't do it and you look to God. And remaining in that spirit is is a key part of discipleship as you recognize your total need and dependence on God as your provider, as your heavenly father. You know, just as the body is lifeless once the spirit leaves it, it can do nothing. We ourselves, the Bible says, it was the other way around. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We could do nothing to please God. But we need and needed the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can help us live for him. And as we recognize our complete inability before God and our need for him, we become poor in spirit. And we look to him As we look to him and realize how great and wonderful he is, that leads to us realizing how wretched we are without God, how sinful we are, what a mess that we've made in the world by doing things our way and so we can decide what's right and wrong. And that leads us to mourn. As the next bit that Jesus addresses says there, we mourn, but we're blessed because we will be comforted John Stott, in his book, says, It is not the sorrow of bereavement to which Christ refers, but it's the sorrow of repentance. And this happens when you begin your relationship with Christ. You realize, oh, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. I need to to turn to him. Uh, And we look to him in faith. But then the rest of our life here on earth, the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart and in my heart. He's changing us. He's transforming us. He's highlighting sin within us so that we can repent of it and say, oh God, I'm sorry that I've done that uh, again in my lives. Lloyd-Jones, again, helpfully says, nothing but the Holy Spirit can humble us. Nothing but the Holy Spirit can make us poor in spirit and make us mourn because of our sinfulness, and produce in us the true right view of self. You see, knowing our own wretchedness before God leads us as Christ's disciples to become meek, because we can't be proud, we can't be arrogant. The word meek there can, uh, can mean, can, could be translated gentle or humble as well, because we know when we realize our own situation, that actually, but for the grace of God, so easily could you or I have gone. Hendrickson, in his commentary, says that meekness is not 
weakness. It's not, it, it, it's not being too weak to force your own will on a situation. That's not meekness. No, you see, no one talks about a, a, a gentle mouse. Oh, that mouse is, is so gentle in the way it, it handles things. No, they're weak in comparison to us, so you don't need to use the word gentle. But if you're in a room with an elephant, you better hope he's a gentle elephant. Otherwise, you'll be in trouble. Actually, on the, when, I, it, when, we, when I took the team out to uh, Nairobi, they, uh, were, um, one, of the, 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 one of the perks is that they went off to see an uh, elephant sanctuary. And there they tell you, because these are, these are baby elephants that are being reared, they say to you, don't squat down when the elephants come near you because they're used to kicking balls around and they might mistake you for a ball. So, uh, <laughs> and they just kick you. So, uh, yes, yeah. You know, meek or gentle is described on something that is strong. Meekness for the Christian is strength controlled under God's direction. That's what meekness is. It, it was a characteristic despised in the Roman world, they hated gentle things. They weren't known for being gentle either. And actually, sadly, it's increasingly being disliked in our culture as well. And yet it is the very characteristic that Christ is looking for in you and in me as well. You see, Jesus had all power. And yet he willingly embraced hardship, embraced insults, even suffering for your sake and my sake, as he followed the Father's will for his life. What about you? In your situation, the meek person looks to God to bring about what God wants to happen in your life. And as we look to God, and as we, as we look to him to bring about all that he wants in our life, that leads us to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, you see, because God Himself is righteous, and He is bringing about His kingdom in righteousness as well. And only the righteous get to enjoy that kingdom when it is fully here on earth. J.C. Ryle says about righteousness. He says he means those whose desire above all things is to be entirely conformed to the mind of God. Now in the Bible, righteousness, it has two main implications when the Bible speaks about righteousness. And then there's a byproduct of those two uh, implications as well. Firstly, when the Bible talks about righteousness, it's talking about your legal standing before God. How does God view you if you're in a court of law? before him. And for those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible has said we have been declared righteous before him. Hallelujah. Not because of your righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness that has been given to you. Then there's ethical and moral righteousness that the Bible refers to, which is in terms of our character, our conduct, how we, how we go about living our lives. And the Holy Spirit, once you become a believer, he is actually the primary person who is discipling you. He is the one who helps point you and make you and um, cause you to want to be righteous before God and also the one that convicts you and, and highlights to you when you fail, when you sin 
Not so that you can be there and be all condemned and uh, think, oh, I'm so, so rubbish. But the reason the Spirit highlights this to you is so that when you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we're right again, so that we're righteous before God. And the outworking of legal and ethical righteousness in the Bible leads to social righteousness or social justice would be what it's sort of referred to more commonly out there in the world. And I don't really have time to go into that now. But only to say this, for the disciple of Jesus Christ, social righteousness or social justice is always a byproduct of the legal and ethical righteousness that Christ has worked into us. You see, otherwise you run into big problems. You run into man trying to fix man's problems without involving God or without referring to God. And yet it's actually because we haven't referred to God or deferred to God in in things that actually we've got those problems in the first place. Scripture makes it clear that as disciples of Christ, we are totally dependent on God for everything. And as we, as we look to him, then he, we should desire that his kingdom comes here in all its fullness, which leads me on to my final point. It's a brief point. Desiring his kingdom here. You see, for the keen listener, you would have realized, hang on a sec, Si, you've looked at, uh, you've looked at just the first half of each of those verses. You've looked at who is blessed. You haven't looked at how they have been blessed. And that's, just, but that's because, as I said earlier, as disciples of Christ, all of these characteristics should be in all of us, and therefore all of the blessings are also applicable to all of us as well. It's like if you travel business class, occasionally I've been upgraded to business class, and it's just lovely when you fly, getting upgraded to business class, but you get all the perks of flying business class. You don't just get a few perks, you get all the perks, and when you're in Christ, you get all the blessings of being in Christ Jesus. The Bible says all God's promises are yes and amen to us in Christ Jesus. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, Jesus goes on to teach us in this sermon as his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. As his disciples, you and I get the privilege of playing our part in bringing God's kingdom here on earth. Lloyd-Jones says, wherever the reign of Christ is being manifest, the kingdom of God is there. We experience the kingdom just in part this side of eternity, but when Christ returns, he will bring the kingdom in all its fullness here on earth, and then there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more sickness, there'll be no more death. Through his spirit, we as believers also experience comfort here and now. The Apostle Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us 
in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort that we ourselves are comforted by God. And of course, it's greater than that because we know that we have the hope that when Christ returns, we will be with him for all eternity in that age to come. We have that comfort to know our eternal destination as well. The age where Christ will give his disciples the whole world as part of their inheritance. The meek will inherit the earth in Christ Jesus. And actually, even now, his meek disciples, as they go about bringing his will here on earth, despite persecution, despite hardship, despite difficulties that are coming their way, they are actually extending God's kingdom all over the known world. It's an unstoppable move that is happening around the earth, despite violent opposition towards it. In fact, Christianity and Christians are still the most persecuted people group in the world, even though the media rarely refer to it, although occasionally you get an odd article in a paper or something like that. And finally, as Christ's disciples who desire righteousness, we are blessed because in Christ Jesus, we can be satisfied because he has made us righteous before God and his Holy Spirit is making us more righteous, making us to be more like Christ as he does his work. In us, He's helping us in our behavior here and now, helping us to get ready for the eternal age that is coming, where there'll be new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, according to Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. You see, all these blessings are ours when we put our faith in Christ Jesus. We inherit those blessings, and we are included in the kingdom of God. Therefore, the overwhelming desire of our life as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, should be, God, bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? All our hope should be in the kingdom of God, that it, and that it is forcefully advancing around the world, despite much opposition. So in closing, my friends, Christ's disciples are dependent on God and desire his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Can I invite the band to come back up here, please? And you may be here this morning, and as I've been speaking, you've realized, actually, God's just been, by his spirit, it's just been highlighting to you that you have got that, just that independent sort of streak in you of, oh, no, God, I want to do it my way. I want, to, I want to do it in my strength, rather than being dependent on him. You've just got slightly out of kilter in your walk with God, where it's about you trying in your strength rather than you coming to God and depending on him. And the Spirit's highlighting that because he loves you and he wants the best for you. And he wants you to just give that area over to God. And when the band start playing and uh, we start singing our first song, can I encourage you to come over to the front left over here and we would love to pray for you. 
For others, I just felt as I was preparing this that there is some misplaced desires in your heart. There's some other things that have risen to a priority level in your heart, actually above the kingdom of God. And God's just been challenging you afresh this morning, saying, come on, guys, actually, you need to readdress this. You need to just put me first again. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you again. There'll be some people who would love to pray for you as well. And then finally, that whole thing about being comforted with the comfort that we have received in Christ. And for some of you, you're going through difficult times and you just need that fresh touch. You just need a brother or a sister to come alongside you and just pray the comfort of God in your life that you would know his love afresh in that difficult situation. You would know his hand on you and uh, him ministering to you in that situation. So for all those things, I invite you to stand.